Welcome to the Game Plan Podcast with Judah Newby and Brian Perkins, breaking down all things Seahawks. Welcome into the Gameplay Podcast, 1029thegame.com. He's Brian Perkins. I'm Judah Newby. The uh, NFL playoffs start tomorrow for the first time in the Seahawk era with Russell Wilson. Uh, they won't be in the playoffs. I was just thinking about this, Perkins. You know, I, I, we were talking about this on Monday, I believe, that we were actually kind of refreshed that Seattle didn't make the playoffs so that they can kind of start from ground zero and build themselves up without any inhibitions any possibilities to talk themselves into the fact that, hey, wait, we were we made the so playoffs. close. We made the playoffs, you know. To me, it's not that hard to make the playoffs. Top six teams in the conference, top 12 teams in the league normally. Seattle didn't deserve to, to go to the playoffs this year. I think we both agreed on that. But the fact that they didn't make the playoffs, I mean, with that much talent, that's a massive failure. That's <laughs> just a, I mean, when I kind of reflect on the season and everything that was expected, that was a massive failure, was it not? Well, not only that, but the fact that Seattle went all in makes it a bigger failure in my eyes, at least. Yeah. Because what you did was you compromised a lot of the future for to win now, which at the time seemed like the right move. Like you, neither you or I or most people were critical of that, right? When they mm-hmm. traded for Sheldon Richardson, you went. You know, maybe it would have been nice to bring in an O lineman, but man, that defensive line looks unstoppable now. If you look at the, even their backups are better than most starters on that defensive line. You look at the trade, the trade for uh, Dwayne Brown early in the season. You go, man, that is going to bolster this team. Yeah, they're off to a little bit of a slow start this year, but he is going to be the key that unlocks their offensive potential. Yeah, yeah, that did not nine work wins. Out. Uh, so that's I think what makes it, at least in my mind, a little bit more painful is. You look at some of the misses that the front office has had, um, and this isn't—I I don't want to be overly critical of of Schneider, but he's—I mean, there have been some some misses from him that are that are very loud. We talked—we used to talk about Jermaine Curse having loud drops. There have been some loud misses. I think one of those misses has to be Malik McDowell. We always forget about how talented the defensive line was, and yet Seattle's number one draft pick. Didn't play at all this year, and who knows if he'll ever play for the Seahawks. I mean, he's had off-field issues, gotten a bar fight in Georgia this offseason, all compiled upon the fact that he got in an ATV accident after being drafted and hurt his head real bad. You know, I mean, that's that's a miss. You got to account for that. It is, and it's not – I mean, you, you can't blame necessarily the coaching staff for that because, I mean, I'm sure that at the Combine they weren't asking him, like, does this ink blot look like an ATV crashing? Mm-hmm into the ground obviously but i mean it looks sounds like there's more character concerns with mcdowell than just uh, that (laughs) mistake yeah but and it's funny because the if you look at the ripples in the pond effect from that atv act let's just go with that not even the rest of the crap that happened i mean do they trade for richardson if mcdowell isn't injured yeah i don't know if they do i don't think so i really don't think about the the trade for richardson the lane deal uh, well, getting rid of Lane for Dwayne Brown and then having Lane come back and therefore miss giving Houston another draft pick. Seattle has one draft pick in the first three rounds of the NFL draft. One. One. And it's their first rounder. And they're probably going to trade overall. back. <laughs> maybe. Maybe they trade up. Uh, we've got a lot of time to discuss what, the, what they might be able to do there. A um, couple of roster notes already made. Blair Walsh is a former Seahawk. And Jason Myers was a kicker that was uh, picked up in free agency. 
by Seattle. Very quickly done right after the end of the season. Just that's a tough one for for Blair Walsh. Obviously, he had one of the biggest kicks in Seahawk history with the wild card game in 2015, missing that one uh, for Minnesota, allowing Seattle to advance. But he started this year off really well, which is one thing that we can't discount. Yeah, he's had shaky moments, but he made 12 of his first 13 field goals until that Washington game. Washington, he misses the three, costs Seattle the game, and of course he misses a game potential game winner from long range against Atlanta. He misses another one against Jacksonville at the end of the first half that they really needed, and he misses, of course, at the end of the season against Arizona. It just reminds you, the kicking game is very important, and obviously Seattle failed in that category this year. Well, and, and I think that you have to emphasize that the way that Pete Carroll wants to play football, I think the kicking game is even more important for Seattle. This is a team that, I mean, field position, all these things really matter, right, like to the Seahawks. You look at the last two years, Seattle's attempted two kicks beyond 50 yards. Two. They're one of two in the last two years. That's that's not very many attempts. No. And what that shows you is that Seattle typically punts in those situations or goes for it if it's maybe a really short-yarded situation late in games because Carroll doesn't want to risk missing a kick you know, on the 45-yard line and giving the team field position. And so you need a guy that, you know, when Walsh misses those kicks, not only is he missing, let's say, like a 45-yarder, he's also setting up the opposing team for, um, for for a good drive starter. So for a team that has the style that they want to play, that they weren't able to play pretty much all year anyway, the kicking game, I think, just exacerbated that. And honestly, John Ryan didn't have a great year either. And they're trying out punters, and I think understandably so. Ryan's the last holdover, right? Um before Pete Carroll got to Seattle. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, and you look in the final game of the year, he had two really bad punts. Really, really bad. And special teams in general was just a cluster this year. Yep. I mean, in a lot of ways. Not that Ryan was terrible all year, okay? I'm not trying to say that. But, you know, we're, we're used to him being so consistent in the punting game and pinning guys deep. And I just don't, I just don't know if we saw that as much this year. Yeah, not a great year for coordinator Brian Schneider either. And that was a unit that was really snake bit for, for the Seahawks this season. A couple of guys that did have decent years on coverage was uh, Jeremy Lane and Justin Coleman did pretty good. Nico Thorpe uh, had some strong coverage moments as well. But other than that, kicking and punting, not a strong suit for the Seahawks. You forget that they were 8-1 to favorites to win the Super Bowl this year behind only the New England Patriots before week one. That's how much Seattle was was respected among uh, yeah, because we all remember the long held narratives that Seattle wouldn't get any national respect in terms of football, and they were eight to one behind the Patriots as as the second highest favored team to win the Super Bowl in the in the preseason. The fact that that didn't come to fruition, you have to you have to look at that with a critical eye and and look just simply beyond the injuries. I mean, this was not a year that the difference between nine and seven and twelve and four wasn't just injuries. <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> you know, it wasn't. And, it, was, it, was, it was a lot of failures across the board. And I think that's what you and I are getting at with the missing the playoffs, right? Is mm-hmm. this team was not, even if they were 100% healthy, this was not a Super Bowl caliber team. No. They I, weren't. I think it, the coaching staff had its worst collective season, Pete Carroll included. Some few games in odd there. Odd decisions. Um, Tom Cable, regardless of what, I mean, look, he's got a track record of success coaching offensive line, but the results just weren't there for this group. They just weren't there. For multiple years in a row now, the results haven't been there. Ever since Marshawn Lynch left. Yeah, and so, Russell so, Okung and, and yeah. you know, Sweezy. Sweezy. Um, McQuist in that first year. Giacomini, Giacomini. even. Like, Unger. Un- Unger's probably the biggest one. The acquisition of Jimmy Graham three years ago. 
that didn't work. Ten touchdowns this year, but too many times where he, we didn't know where it was, not making an impact. And then when we did notice him, he was dropping critical passes. Ten touchdowns was great, but overall needed more. And that's another one of those misses I'm tell, uh, that I'm talking about from the front office. Is I'm not saying, once again, at the time, did the trade seem like a bad deal? I think that it wasn't as much a no-brainer because you lose your best offensive lineman, but there were injury concerns with Max Unger's future, I think, you know, yeah. um, with this team. And so they, they kind of, you know, they, they made a... How about the big splash trades that they made, including the Graham one, but you also think about Percy Harvin midseason, right? F. And then... Jimmy Graham the following year, C minus, and Dwayne Brown this year. Was it, considering what you had to give up and what ultimately was the results on the offensive line, that's that's not a passing grade. It's maybe, not. maybe you have to judge that one in the prism of what next season is. I was like. going to say if you can retain him, I know he's in his early thirties, but if you can, if you end up retaining him for the next three or four years and you're able to reload, I think that ends up being a good trade. And the big trade of of Sheldon Richardson, which. He was fine, but he wasn't the disruptive, unstoppable force I kind of expected him to be. Yeah. I mean, the defensive line in general was very disappointing this year. The defensive line of the Rams and Cardinals were both better in the division than Seattle's this year. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. I would not have expected to say. And that was something that, I mean, I think I even tweeted it out to start the year after their trade. You go, man, Seattle has the best D-line in football. They Well, that's what many expected and thought. Not even close. Well, Cliff Averill leaves in the fourth game of the year, and he doesn't come back. Sure. Michael Bennett has foot and knee stuff that is chronic at this point. And he was not the dominant player that he is when he's healthy. I mean, he's dominant when he's healthy, and, and he wasn't at all this year. Um, needed more out of him. And Richardson, I guess, he had moments of brilliance, but he didn't stand out, I guess, as much. Frank Clark. Frank Clark, apparently, I mean, he had broken bones in both hands um, that he was working through, but at the same time, wasn't didn't emerge as a dominant player. Uh, Deion Jordan... Kind of was a nice yeah. surprise late in the year, and it was kind of interesting to see if I if thought Jaron Reed played well this yeah. year, and he missed a handful of games as well. But uh, and Quentin Richardson, I think, is a, is a good player. Quentin Jefferson is a good player, but uh, you know, he, obviously, he had his moment. Nas Jones in, in uh, Jacksonville. Nas Jones, no Malink McDowell. Overall, there's pieces there, but the production wasn't there. The, well, the rel- rel- relentless pass rush that we're so accustomed to seeing was not there. QBs had time against the Seahawks. And honestly, you know, we we're, I think a lot of this goes back to the front office, um, the decisions that they made and how they panned out. And, you know, we're never probably ever going to see this team ever draft like they did from 2010 to 2013. Because I don't know how you could ever repeat that success. Finding guys, I mean, you're finding future Hall of Famers in the sixth round. How often are you going to be able to do that? But in order to maintain success and sustain that long term, you have to hit in a lot of categories and your trades have to be money and your free agent signings have to be money. And early on in this tenure, you know, with this with this tandem, those things happened to a team. Michael Bennett came in. Cliff Averill came in. Those were great free agent signings and honestly, a pretty good deals, too, for those guys coming into town. Um, But you look at I mean, look at even bringing in Luke Jokel this offseason. Seven million dollars. Was it worth it? No. Oh, I would did. say that was a failure. He got hurt, and then he didn't play well after he came back. You extend uh, Justin Britt this year. He was forgettable. He wasn't. Oh, he, uh, I think he was he, fine. He was fine. He wasn't the. He wasn't the worst of their problems but, by far. But compare his salary to the rest of the centers in the NFL, and he needs to be more than fine, given the cap situation this team is in. Posick, I think, shows a lot of potential. We don't. I mean, Jerry's out. You know, Effetti, 
<laughs> Obviously, the discipline issues with the Fetty. I mean, he's a first-round pick. You would expect him to be better than he was this year, in my opinion. And does that go back to Tom Cable? Does that go back to whatever? But I look at that as a whiff. I yeah. mean, that's just how I look at it right now as it stands, two years in. It was a whiff for this season, no doubt. Yeah. Absolutely. And, th- and this was a season where you would expect you would expect and hope that he would be able to take that next step, and he didn't. I so. think I think that you know we're talking about defensive and offensive line there. So much of football is boiled down to who wins the trench war in terms of matchups, and there were so many times where it was, you know, we kind of expected the offensive line to to be on the short end of the stick in the, their trench wars week in week out. We did not expect the defensive line to get beaten as often as they did, and it showed up in the run defense, especially in December when Seattle. Obviously had their problems with Todd Gurley. They had their problems with Leonard Fournette, and they had their problems with um, Kermit Williams <laughs> in the Arizona game, especially in the first half. This run defense, not as dominant. But it, you move a level back on the defensive side. Props up to Bobby Wagner for having such a, a, a another dominant dominant season. That's six straight seasons of 100-plus tackles for Bobby Wagner for a franchise record. Played when he was healthy, defensive player of the year caliber. When he wasn't healthy, it was quite noticeable uh, that Rams game exhibit a KJ Wright also had a really good year when he was healthy too but overall the linebacking core was I think the strongest unit of an injury riddled defense it was it was and it's hard the defense is hard to judge a little bit because of all the injuries I mean I think that there were a lot of bright spots Bobby Wagner is clearly still in his prime which is awesome Um, and he's a guy that while we've always respected the hell out of him right like if you if you know the Seahawks you know that Bobby Wagner has been a big big part of their success defensively he still gets overshadowed you know he's a quieter guy he's not Uh, in the Legion of Boom no he's not in the LOB he doesn't make you know he makes great plays but like you talk about you know Richard Sherman you know getting picks and talking junk and Earl Thomas and Cam Chancellor blowing guys up um, you know, and then on the other side, you know, you talk about guys making plays over the last five years, whoever's been on that other side opposite Sherman. And even on the defensive line, you know, you have Michael Bennett, who's, you know, a, a big advocate for social causes off the field, on the field. He has his, he's known for his celebrations. There's just a lot of guys that have a lot of bigger personalities than Bobby Wagner and their plays stand out a little bit more on the field, not because they're necessarily better, just because of the positions they play, I think, um, compared to Bobby, where, you know, Bobby might make a great tackle to prevent a four-yard gain from becoming an eight-yard gain, or he might, he's pretty good in coverage too, right? He might have a pass breakup that most guys couldn't contain, but he's not going to have that big plane. He's been overshadowed, but <laughs> this year, I think what you saw was him really become the leader of that defense. I mean, this defense... He is the pillar that you build around, I think, um, defensively. Him and KJ and, you know, hopefully Earl Thomas. But if you were a betting man, do you think Richard Sherman comes back next year? Coming off an Achilles, final year of his contract. His dead money is, um, I think, $2 million, something in that range. You can save a lot of money off the cap if you if you cut him. I mean, what do you think the team does there? Yeah, I, I think uh, they bring him back. He's too important and iconic a player, I think, to that they would cut loose. Now, if they do... That's some that's some serious, you know, bold new direction. <laughs> Cutting Richard Sherman would be just for the headline material, would be, um, you know, really indicative of a front office that's not taking any nose, right? That that's like at all costs, we're just going in a new direction, finding a new identity. Uh, keep in mind, Cam Chancellor's injury is potentially career threatening and almost likely career threatening. The way that uh, Pete Carroll is talking about it, and the way that Cliff Averill too, other reports have surfaced. Cliff Averill's as well. You know, I, I'm not sure we can ever expect to see Cam Chancellor back on a football field, um, which is sad. 
And if you're looking for timeline with that, if he's on the roster February 9th, I believe, that's when his $8 million kicks in as a roster bonus. I'm going to look that up again real quick here. Well, and $6.8 million becomes guaranteed for Cam Chancellor if he's on the roster by February 9th. So we're going to get in the next month an idea if Cam Chancellor, what is he going to do with his football future? And I think that will in part also affect what Seattle does with Richard Sherman. It's just interesting because, and who knows how Richard Sherman effective he's going to be. You know, Achilles injuries are so difficult to determine. When you turn when you turn thirty, the NFL is not kind to you. Historically, things do not go well. Uh, you know, typically you're not getting better once you turn thirty. Let's put it that way. You might not just you're not going to just fall off necessarily, but you're going the wrong direction once you turn thirty years old. You've reached the peak and you're going back down the mountain. And I personally, as a fan. I want to see Richard Sherman be a Seahawk his entire career. I want to see him retire a Seahawk. That's just what I want to see because I think he's a I've really I like him a lot. I like that he's a Seahawk. I love his personality. I think those all those things are great. And it will be it would be difficult to see him on another team. But if you look at a team like New England that's had so much success over the last, you know, 15 years, despite the fact they've had so much turnover and so many different, like, you know, they've had dominant offenses, they've had dominant defenses, they've this and that. What's the underlying factor of why this team has been successful? The big reason is they just cut guys or trade guys. They don't really care. If they don't think that they're going to be worth the salary, they're gone. I mean, think about even going back to Dion Branch back in the day, who ironically enough came to Seattle. Um, I saw him play live. That play might be a subjective term. Um, he did give gloves to a kid after the game. That was pretty cool. But, uh, I mean, you look at that Chandler Jones, you, you know, who's still been an effective player, but, you know, someone that they felt that they could, you know, still get. <laughs> well, that's a bad move by them. Chandler Jones led the league in sacks this year. He did. And but... the Patriots don't have a pass rush. So, good <laughs> good job, Bill. <laughs> but, okay, well, sometimes you miss. But I'm just saying, like, the the Patriot way, to use that cliche, has always been – you know, look, we appreciate what you've done, but we don't think that you can continue to play at this level. We're letting you go. Does Seattle go down that route? Do you stick more to emotions and what players mean to the franchise? Do you think Richard Sherman can still be effective and be worth the contract? Because Seattle's cap right now is really bad. Their cap situation. It's one of the worst in the league. So where they have opportunities to save money, you've got to think that they would take them. You got to at least heavily consider it. I mean, Richard Sherman's a guy that you know. Remember all the trade that he asked for a trade last offseason, all the rumors around that. I mean, I think that there's definitely a lot more question marks than maybe even I realized, even when we had our podcast on Monday or Tuesday. Um, even Earl Thomas, you know, the, these guys are in the last year of their contracts. Earl Thomas going into his final season as is Sherman. Yeah, as you mentioned, um, rookie Shaquille Griffin played pretty well for a rookie. Bright spot. Um, Jeremy Lane, not too bad, but Justin Coleman was a better nickelback this year than Jeremy Lane. And uh, Bradley McDougald was actually a really nice signing for safety depth that they obviously so conspicuously didn't have a season ago, but it was a one-year deal. Byron Maxwell came back and played for the Seahawks in the Legion of Boom and was actually decent uh, this year as well. Uh, Michael Bennett, uh, his contract situation, everybody talking about it you know what his kind of cap it would be like he's got 5.2 million in dead money for next year just two million dollars in possible savings there but the key word is possible savings and for a team up against it with the cap it's possible savings I mean you got to take that you know we'll see but 
he's 32 years old, and again, year in, year out, Michael Bennett's got something that's not necessarily keeping him off the field, but when he's on the field, not being able to play to his potential. He said he doesn't think he'll be back. Yeah. You know what he said during his exit interview uh, with the media. And $2 million may not seem like a lot, and maybe they won't do it because if the talent outweighs, you know, the loss, you know, the gain that you get, you would obviously, you know, retain the talent. But, I mean, you look at this team this year that had no, literally like no cap space in the middle of the season. Everyone goes, why aren't you cutting Blair Walsh? Why aren't you cutting Blair Walsh? We, you know, you need a kicker. You need someone that's consistent. They couldn't. They had no cap space to go out and sign someone. They could not do it. They could not, literally could not make that decision because of cap space. So while $2 million may not seem like a lot, it may not be a lot to bring in a, you know, a big name in free agency, that $2 million can make a big difference, even in season potentially if something goes wrong. Trade value for Michael Bennett might not be that much, but it might be six rounder or something like that. With his contract, I don't know if it's worth much at all, yeah. if anything. Um, you know, it just goes to show you. So I, I, w- I went through a little bit of Seahawk withdrawal this week, got to say it. So I... I um, Jumped on NFL Game Pass, Game Rewind. Went back to a couple years ago and watched a couple games, including the Vikings playoff game and the Panthers playoff game, because uh, I hate myself. Yeah, I was going to say, what a, a uh, blood for punishment. You know, but it, it just reminded me of how good Michael Bennett was when he was healthy and how much freedom he had to do his own thing, kind of apart from the scheme, how and how effective he was at doing that, just jumping in any gap. Jumping off sides a lot, obviously, which he that didn't slow him down. But yeah, he, used to he, be he the, would go the, all over the place. He was he was his own thing, but he had that freedom. I think, you know, now I think about it being as injured and banged up as he was, all of a sudden those freedoms became inhibitions on a defensive line that's working together as a unit. Now all of a sudden that amazing individual piece that he can't execute in those in those, you know, liberal operations that he was so accustomed to doing very well. And all of a sudden from being an advantage, it puts them at a you know, at a risk for the big play, and that's kind of what happened this year. With how well that he has played in Seattle, there was more room for error for things like offsides and and this and that. It was frustrating, still, right? Like it was still even well, in the they Su- led the league in scoring defense. What four years in a row, right? Even in Super Bowl forty nine, mm-hmm. you know, when the Patriots had the ball after the pick on the one yard line, they still had to make a play there. Seattle got a safety. There was enough time. Maybe they get the ball and can make something happen. And he jumps off sides, like, <laughs> thus ending the game. Um, so, yeah, I mean, those frustrating things have happened. But it used to, the, the fact that he was so effective greatly outweighed any any of that. And he just went, well, that's part of his game. He's, he's sometimes overly aggressive. But in the end, it's worth it. We saw a Michael Bennett in Week 17 that could not twice change chase down a quarterback with a torn ACL. And that's how far he has fallen. And I don't know if he can get, you know, he had the planter fasciitis this year he said that he's been playing it with it the entire season which I don't know if you've ever had that injury but I don't know how he could ever play on that and I'm not saying he's lying I'm just saying that's incredible because that is horrible pain to try to walk on that situation so I don't know if he's able to come back from that but you know the injuries seem to add up every year for him now and it's going to be a tough. There's a lot of difficult decisions. Schneider and Carroll are earning their paychecks this offseason if they haven't before, because there are a lot of decisions to make. Back to the offensive side of the ball, the wide receivers. You know, your three starting receivers are six feet and under. You know, we've been talking about the need for a tall receiver in the past, and Jermaine Curse almost used to fit that role, letting him go, and he had a decent year with the New York Jets. Um, you know, I talk about watching that Vikings and Panthers playoff games from 2015, and he had. Good games in both of those, especially the Carolina game when they were down 31 nothing. Curse had a huge second half. 
couple of touchdowns. But, um, you know, this year, Doug Baldwin, who caught 98 passes a season ago, only caught 75 this year. Paul Richardson had a good year with 44 catches over 700 yards, but Tyler Lockett never seemed to make the vertical threat that we were hoping to see him make, given, though, Perkins, that he had that devastating leg injury Christmas Eve against the Cardinals. I don't think he ever fully returned to form. He was always playing a little bit nicked up, dinged up, never quite 100%. Honestly, it feels like Tyler Lockett hasn't been 100% since the knee injury. Yeah. Um, you know, you're totally right on that. And, you know, he had the kick return for the touchdown, like you said, but he is a shell of the player that we thought he would be, I think, at this point. And I think the injury is a big reason for that. Um, I thought that he would become a huge weapon in the passing game, and we just haven't seen that. He hasn't been able to get that separation that we thought that we saw from him early in his career. I think that even he surprised the coaching staff. Remember his rookie season with some of the plays he made on the offensive side, not just the special team side, but I think which is where they thought they would at least see an impact early in his career. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's there's one guy that you thought could really be a steady, stable, speedy guy for you, and it just it unfortunately hasn't panned out because of injuries. We'll see what they do at the wide receiver position this offseason. Paul Richardson walking into free agency probably has earned himself a nice spot somewhere. Six weeks ago, I would have been like, yeah, of course you're bringing back P. Rich. Like, it's a no-brainer. And then fell off the face of the earth last three weeks of the season. Two, two drops in the game, final game of the year. One that was probably a touchdown late in the game. And you don't want to have recency bias. It's difficult because he had his best year as a Seahawk yeah, he's ever far. had. Yeah. 44 but catches. What is that? What What's that price tag going to be? That's going to be the the difference maker here. Yeah, and I don't know what they do at tight end. You know, if Jimmy Graham goes, as he probably will, Luke Wilson probably goes. Now you're down to guys like Nick Vanette at the position. So, you know, what kind of acquisition can you make there of a trusted pass catcher? And look, I go back to when Zach Miller was here and how viable it was to have a reliable tight end to be able to catch the football. Not that Jimmy Graham hasn't been reliable. Well, no, he hasn't been reliable. He's been yeah. advantageous in moments, but he hasn't been reliable. So... You know, I'd rather have a cheap, reliable option that wasn't the playmaker Jimmy Graham was and just have a guy that's consistent and that you can throw to on third and five and make catches. That's all you need at that position for me. I thought Vanette was going to be that guy. Yeah. Hasn't happened yet. Nope. Not as a fifth rounder. Running. I was just going to go to running back. Sure. Yeah. How. It was great great this year. How happy are you to see Alex Collins succeed? I'm watching a highlight right now as we're talking. Um, of his cutback run against the Bengals, where there was an outside run designed to the left side of the field. Nothing there. He cuts all the way back to the right and walks it in from 20 yards out for a touchdown. I mean, he looked like a completely different player than he was in Seattle. Completely different. I want right. to get in his head, and and offensive line must be a big reason for that, but what else was the factor here? He's just running with so much confidence. What was the difference between yeah. Seattle and Baltimore. Well, I don't know. I don't know what kind of psychological differences there might be there, but I do know what you brought up, the offensive line. Look, average running backs can be made to look great with a great offensive line. Bad running backs can be made to look good with a good offensive line. Um, You know, Seattle didn't have a good offensive line. That, that's what makes decent running backs look horrible when you have no, no room to run. Uh, Eddie Lacy signing, that's a whiff. Talk, talking about whiffs. Uh, Thomas Rawls, that's another whiff. CJ Procise has been a whiff because of injuries. JD McKissick was nice as a scat back. 
Um, I, I hope to see him back. He'll probably have some type of third down role, I would hope. J.D. McKissick led running backs and touchdowns for Seattle this year. With one. With one. <laughs> Russell Wilson accounted for every touchdown except for that. Can you believe that? There were more I mean, defensive touchdowns be, than running back touchdowns for that, Seattle. It's got to be historic, poor rushing uh, production. Seattle rushed for zero yards with <laughs> running backs inside the 10. Zero! It's incredible. That's incredible. Um, and you know what? The offensive line is bad, but that's like – you just mentioned historic. That speaks to more than the offensive line. If the offensive line is that bad that you literally can't rush for any yards you know, in the red zone, then you need to fire – I mean, Tom Cable should have been fired halfway through the season. I just don't think they – it's a combination. It's a perfect storm. You have a somewhat change in philosophy. You have an offensive coordinator that – at times looked like he didn't know what the hell to do this year. You have a stable of running backs that are inconsistent at best, especially when your best guy goes down, you know, week, whatever it was, two, three, <laughs> into the season. Carson. I think it was the Colts game, right? Yeah. Week three. Week three. Week and you four, have a bad week four week after four. the Titans game. Yeah. And you have a bad offensive line. So you, I mean. Yeah. I mean, you look at any area of production or lack thereof of any unit. And you can cite multiple factors. I think that's the most important thing to remember. It's not any one person's fault for any one thing. It's, you know, Daryl Bevel, why, why is he not making the right play calls? Well, what's going through his head? Well, my offensive line can't run block. You know, my, my running backs can't hit the holes when there are holes there. My quarterback gets scared when he's dropping back to pass because protection's not there. Uh, what kind of consistency can you get in play calling at that point? Tom Cable is probably trying to coach up his offensive line thinking, well, you know, my left tackle project wasn't there. Now we got Dwayne Brown, who's good, but doesn't have the continuity or consistency we're looking for yet. And Justin Britt's my third center in as many years, you know, and just trying to figure out stuff like that. And then Russell Wilson, who plays at a transcendent level in the fourth quarter all season long, and yet there's criticisms to be made in his game this year. You know, didn't ultimately make it to 4,000 yards passing. Um great in the fourth quarter but so dismal in the first half it, it was it was amazing and he he was the best player on your team by far and he's going to take up 13 percent of the cap each of the next two years there there it kind of was a perfect storm though to your point so look i in the end though this is this is how i look at it when it go when you go back to bevel i just look at you look at teams that seattle plays against and you go how can they be more effective than Seattle, even in that Arizona game? Drew freaking Stanton, yeah. all backups on your offensive line. Torn ACL. Torn ACL. Your, Kermit your, Williams. Your backup quarterback, who is most known for dancing on the sideline as someone else ran it in for a touchdown, is a playing on a torn ACL in your house and slinging it. You're running the football well with Kermit Washington or whoever. Um, <laughs> I mean, with all backups on your offensive line, with a coach that's about to retire, and you know, you could argue is somewhat checked out. Yet their offense looked light years ahead of Seattle's. Even in the game, which was a fantastic game, and Seattle ended up scoring quite a bit, thanks a lot to their defense um, against the Texans. I mean, Houston's offense was so creative. You know, before Watson went down, where they took advantage of so many of his skills. And they did so many different things on offense. And Seattle's just, it, they look stale. They look stale. They look boring. And when you watch these other teams with lesser talent 
find more success than Seattle, I do think you have to look at the coaching staff at that point. I mean, I know that I, I get where you're coming from, where there is a lack of talent, but plenty of other teams are seeing that yet being more efficient and finding ways to get it done anyway. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I totally agree. They, yeah, there's a lot of blame. Perhaps the majority of the blame should be on Daryl Bevel, but not all of it is what I mean. Yes, if you were to allocate you know, 100% of the blame any to one area, I think you would be a little bit simplistic. That's there, what makes but. football great because, and very difficult to comprehend at the same time. Blame everyone. Well, because it, it is like the ultimate team sport. Like having a franchise quarterback is crucial, but in the end, like, if you don't have anything around him, you're going to win six games. You know, yeah. if you don't have a, the proper coaching staff, you're going to restrict him. This, all these things play into each other. Wasn't the defense it, wasn't it just yesterday? Russell Wilson was signing his contract. He's got two years left, and he's like relatively moderately paid now. When he was, yeah. he signed the richest contract in history, I think, to that point. Now I think he's fourth or fifth in the list. Yeah, yeah. You know, one thing that does console me a bit, like I look at Green Bay. In how legendary Aaron Rodgers is. What do they have to show for the Aaron Rodgers era? One Super Bowl, 2010. Disappointment ever since. And now they've got GM changes. They fired their defensive coordinator. They fired their offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach. Fired a couple more defensive assistants. And nothing really that tangible to show for it. You know, Seattle's in not that much different a position than than Green Bay in terms of legacy with a star quarterback. One Super Bowl, yeah, they they went to another one and lost in crushing fashion. But, you know, we think of Green Bay and we're always perennially optimistic about Green Bay because of number 12. And- but but you have a t- – I agree. I get where you're coming from with that, with, with Aaron Rodgers. This was a team, though, that still, even with his injury, with three weeks to go in the season, had a chance at the playoffs with him coming off of a shoulder injury or a collarbone injury. So, while I get where you're coming from, and these franchises have a lot of at least early similarities, obviously Green Bay's progressed a lot farther than Seattle has so far. I mean, if Russell Wilson went down for a month and a half this year, what would have happened to this team? I mean, well, they you know, won- I got a lot of faith in Austin Davis. <laughs> they would have won four games this yeah. year. Yeah, that's or true. Ma- you know what I mean? Maybe. And Wilson wouldn't have come back because they would have had no shot at getting into the playoffs. So while I get where you're coming from with that, with Green Bay, they still have more talent than Seattle. And I mean, in my opinion, well, I, I don't know how else. I don't know about talent, but they played a lot better. <laughs> they did under adverse circumstances. Yeah, they really did. Um, I, you know, in Seth Wickersham of ESPN came out with a kind of a takedown piece on the Patriots this morning. Um, well, late last night, early this morning, which is getting a lot of buzz, and it just kind yeah, of like reminded, one a.m. It was released, right, or it, something. It reminded me of the Wickersham piece on the Seahawks in the preseason. Um, wasn't that this preseason? That was trying to draw the rift between uh, Wilson and Sherman, and and uh, all that good stuff, and yep. kind of was effective in terms of of national impact, but kind of you know, look, if the Patriots <laughs> that have won. Five Super Bowls and have gone to seven Super Bowls. You know, if they are up for national criticism and like we're trying to take the Patriots down, well, like who cares if they go down? They won five Super Bowls and went to seven. Like who the hell cares if it ends? Like yeah, they've the had most, the greatest the great, run in hell in NFL history, as opposed to the Seahawks, which is you know they, they had so much promise and the, the one Super Bowl they've won so far is when their quarterback was in year two. Dan Marino went to a Super Bowl when he was in year two. Never won one. 
You know, the Bills were great for so long. Four Super Bowls in a row, in a row never won one. You know, I'm what I mean is I, I think this is an important offseason for the future of, of dictating what the final legacy of Russell Wilson and the Seahawks with Pete Carroll is going to be. I mean, retirement was brought up for Pete Carroll for the first time this offseason, this uh, in Week 17. John Schneider being rumored for that Green Bay opening now that Ted Thompson has left is is a thing. You know, this offseason is crucial to determining the, the forecast of this team for this era, and it's already six years old. I would argue the era is over, and we're entering a new era as fans, personally. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that, you know, even if, let's say that they keep Sherman, they keep Earl Thomas, they keep Michael Bennett, okay? And they keep, you know, Wags and, and KJ. If Cam Chancellor retires, Cliff Averill retires. That's still, to me, the end of an era. You have uh, Richard Sherman coming off of an Achilles injury. I mean, I almost feel like it's like the bad boys or something, like the Pistons. Like, like Isaiah Thomas gets the Achilles injury. Richard Sherman gets the Achilles injury. Both are, like, critical in the media. A lot of outspoken personalities, except for they won two championships. Um, but you know what I mean? Like, I almost feel like that a little bit. Like, the breakup's going to be bad, you know? Like, like uh for how good the rise was, but I feel like it is the end of an era and you're going to start a new one with your franchise quarterback now. But I mean, this felt like an era where you had defensive dominance. I mean, you look at their defensive DVOA over the last five, you know, before this season, you know, tops in the league almost every single year. I mean, that era is things are changing, you know, I just don't know if Seattle is going to get back to that position. I don't feel confident that they will. If Seattle, uh, Quickly, last thing: if they if they bring up Chris Carson and Mike Davis back as their running backs next year, are you fine with that? No, I might be okay with that. I, I like those guys. So what you're asking for then is a major upgraded O line. Yeah, because neither of those guys are great running backs. Well, I, so I, you talked about your good running backs, good offensive line, this and that. So you need an upgraded O line then. I guess my big my big picture thing was instead of bringing in an expensive established runner, I think it'd be a bad move to bring in an expensive established runner. I think it'd be a more frugal move to buy into the potential of what those two guys can bring and then and then get more out of the offensive line. Chris Carson, 49 yard rushes, 208 yards this year for Seattle. That's well over four yards a carry. Which is what it's you cr- want. It's great. Yeah, that's what you want, especially considering how everything that's else went great. for Seattle. Yeah, we forget how effective he was. Mike Davis, 68 attempts, 240 yards. Go oh, what, 3-5, three, 3-6? Three, that's still pretty good for that offensive line, and you can't deny. There there was times in that Jacksonville game, they ran him four times in a row, he gained 50 yards. You know, maybe you can bring in like an aging vet from Green Bay, a guy that's had weight issues. Wow. Um, yeah, that was a look, bad, bad move. Look, look, it's a bad move. In the end, the, this team, while you and I talked about it this year, and you know I was a big proponent in you know becoming a pass-first offense, like you have to be able to run some semblance of the football. I don't care what offense you have. You have to. Yeah. You, you do. have to. And stop running it on second and ten. But outside of that, you need to run the football. So I, I just don't think that's going to be enough. I don't think that's going to be enough. With injuries alone, I don't think it's going to be enough for Seattle. So I, I don't know what you do. Do you draft a guy? I mean, I don't think they're spending a first round pick on a running back with the holes that they have to fill. But I think we're gonna we're gonna see with the decisions that Pete Carroll and John Schneider make this offseason, are they gonna try to go back to 
you know, 2012 through 2015, 2016 football? Or are they going to try to move into a new direction with the with their franchise quarterback and, and you know, really try to bring out the best of his abilities? I think we're going to learn a lot about what they're trying to do with, based on how they draft and the decisions they make with personnel. Right. All right, let's quickly uh, do some wild card picking, shall we? Let's do it. Titans-Chiefs Saturday afternoon. Marcus Mariota's first NFL playoff game. Real barn burner in Kansas City. Chiefs favored by eight and a half. Hate to go against Marcus Mariota, but Titans, I don't think, are a good football team. I'll take Kansas City. Yeah. uh, Kansas City is obviously a very vulnerable team with how they've played this year, but I just don't see at home them losing to a very flawed. I mean, Tennessee is not a playoff caliber team to me um, at all. And Marcus Mariota has not been good this year. I can't believe that. At all. Figuring what we saw in week three, we really thought that team had some uh, some playoff potential and deep playoff potential from what they did to the Seahawks in September. Yeah, but they have not played well. And they basically basically got in the playoffs, you know, by playing a team that didn't give a crap in week 17. Played so, all their starters, but played without much motivation. Yeah, I mean, so, uh, yeah, give me the, give me the uh, Chiefs. Chiefs. Uh, let's talk about that team. The Jaguars, they play Sunday morning. Three seed against the six seed Buffalo Bills. Bills first playoff game since '99, uh, playoff appearance since the '99 season, I should say. Jaguars, you know, props props up to them, you know, and they've got I think some potential to make to make some noise here in the postseason. Um, I like them to beat Buffalo. Yeah, I uh, I like them to beat Buffalo as well, but it's cool. The the Bills story is cool. Yeah, it's awesome, man. and. Thanks. The, the only bad part is, is now guess who holds the record for longest playoff draw in major sports? Seattle Mariners. <laughs> Go M's. <laughs> but <laughs> it is pretty cool. It, it it was so cool to see like the fans and the players even. Like I, this is what drives me nuts about. I love college sports guy. Is the, the uh, professional players have no passion. All they care about is a paycheck. Watch that video and tell me that again. Yeah, that brought me to tears watching Kyle Williams celebrating the locker room and the Bills fans yeah. in the stadium. Yeah, watch that video and, t- and try to tell me that. That's a complete BS narrative that doesn't that isn't true at all. But anyway, I do think the Jags are going to win in spite of whatever Blake. I think this game could be really important for their playoff run based on like how well Blake Bortles can play for his confidence. Like If he can play like he did week, what, 12 through 15? They could make us some serious. I mean, they. I think that they could make a deep run. Well, they already beat the Steelers in Pittsburgh earlier this year they without did. Blake Bortles doing much. So yeah, if he was competent in that game in the divisional round, then I. I mean, there. I've seen some people take the Jaguars to reach the AFC title game, and with those corners, Bouye and Ramsey, and that D line, and that D line. We know Tom like, Brady is his weakness is anyone getting near him. Pressure and, and especially pressure up the middle, and they've got Calais Campbell to do that. I mean, I'm I might actually pick Jags Pats in the AFC title game. <laughs> you know, that'd be great. And then the Wickersham piece will pop up and it was the Jacksonville Jaguars was New England's kryptonite all along. Jags um, Panthers in the Super Bowl. Let's go. Four people will watch. Um, let's do uh let's do Panthers Saints Sunday Sunday afternoon in New Orleans. I just love Ingram Kamara, what they've done. Michael Thomas has had a really big year as well. And Breeze is Breeze. Carolina, their record's a little inflated, but they made it in. Uh, Keekley and Davis is where they, their star impact is. And ultimately, it comes down to how well Cam Newton's playing for them on offense as well. Yeah, and, um, and can they utilize a young guy like Christian McCaffrey? Yeah, and, um, and he's emerged as the season's progressed finally. too. Yeah, yeah. it kind of felt like one of those things where, God, it's like you use a first-round pick on this guy. And, yeah. 
You're not doing anything to to complement his game. I just don't have any faith in Cam Newton right now, you know, with the way he's played this year. It's been so inconsistent, um, you know, and I've always been a Cam Newton fan. Um, Me too. You know, he's done some things that are annoying, obviously, throughout his career, but uh, even this season. But I, I, he's been too inconsistent for me to to confidently say that they can go on the road and beat a very um, balanced New Orleans Saints team that lost their first two games this year and exploded from that point on. Yeah, they really did. They've already beat Carolina twice. I like New Orleans as well. Last game, probably best game, Saturday night, NBC, Rams at home, LA's first playoff game in Memorial Coliseum since 94. Rams' first playoff game in LA since, I think, like 79. And uh, they got the defending NFC champion Atlanta Falcons and our friend Dan Quinn. Uh, this is a great matchup from that perspective. Falcons actually playing pretty well down the stretch, decently well. Their defense has really emerged. They're ninth in defensive DVOA, if you can believe that. Yeah. Um, but L.A. offensively, pff, they've been something to watch with one of the MVP candidates and Todd Gurley. Um, you know, will the inexperience of L.A. catch up to him as opposed to the experience of the Falcons? I can't help but think about you know, when Seattle lost to the New England Patriots, then they were a six seed the following year and went to Minnesota. And, uh, you know, got fortunate to win that wild card game. Is there a similar narrative involved with the Falcons this year? I have a hard time believing that. And it's mostly because, you know, when when Shanahan left, this team was completely different, right? I mean, you look at offensively, I just don't see how they get over the hump. I know that the Rams, the narrative is the Rams are young and they have a young quarterback. But you know what? Seattle was young. They had a young quarterback when they made their first deep playoff run, if we remember correctly. So I think the Rams are going to win this game, to be honest. And fun fact, this is Al Michaels' uh, first. He's never called an NFL game in Los Angeles. Al Michaels. That's awesome. So this will be, he, he gets the uh, the career uh, sweep here. Yeah. He I finally love, calls a game in L.A. I love Al Michaels for sure. I think he lives down there from what he I does, yeah, read. Yeah, so he uh, doesn't have to go much, much. Uh, well, to call based on one. traffic, you know, might be a little bit. It's probably knowing Al he'll, fly. he'll <laughs> helicopter in with Collinsworth. <laughs> Uh, I'll take the Rams as well. I think I had 30 to 20, but um, I'm really, really looking forward to seeing that game. So you and I went, we went chalk. I think we did. Yeah, we went uh, Jags, Rams, Chiefs, and uh, Saints. Who do you like in the NFC big picture? God, see, this is the million-dollar question, isn't it? And this is Neither why... of us like Philly, right, because of Foles. Yes, but but this is why the playoffs are so interesting beyond the wild card round like divisional round is so interesting because it feels like any team can win probably um, unless maybe Carolina gets lucky or something. I, I like the Vikings. I think I like the Vikings too. And they would be in the Super Bowl in their home dome, which would be pretty wild. So they would be the third team to play in their home market. Uh, the, the Vikings would, if they get to the Super Bowl, who are the other two, the other two, the 49ers played in Stanford stadium in Super Bowl 19. Oh, wow. And then the uh, and instead of candlestick, right? So they didn't play in their home stadium, but played home market, okay. which I do think is a big deal. Yeah. And then they played uh, the L.A. Rams played in the Rose Bowl in the Super Bowl um, instead of L.A. Memorial Coliseum. Wow. Well, that would be amazing if the Vikings were able to play in their home dome. Case Keenum, Super Bowl champion, MVP, maybe. If the Vikings get to the Super Bowl, I think they would win too. I think that they would beat the Patriots. Or by whoever. By the way, like. Just talk about the Patriots. I would love to see them have to go up against the Jacksonville defense in the AFC title game and the Viking defense in the Super Bowl. Those would be their toughest defensive tests of the season by yeah. far. Yeah. But I still have a hard time, especially with the Wickersham piece today. I think that seals up another Lombardi for the Pats. 
Uh, that's just the way it goes sometimes. <laughs> For Brian Perkins, I'm Jude Anubi. We'll talk to you again sometime next week, talking more Seahawks as, as we react to the news and kind of forecast some things the offseason. This is the Game Plan Podcast on 1029thegame.com.